Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. For a person with cystic fibrosis, a genetic disease that causes persistent lung infections, a lung transplant may extend life by years. Or it could lead to continued suffering and rejection of the new organ. This hour on Audacious, we get up close and personal with two young people with end-stage cystic fibrosis and hear about their decision to get a transplant or not. To have, you know, just a 50% chance of surviving just didn't sound like a good decision for me. I'd rather fizzle out than fade. That's part of a documentary produced a decade ago by Audacious executive producer Katie Talarski. In 2010, Beth Peters got her double lung transplant. We'll talk with her about how she and her lungs are doing now and how she got through the pandemic. I even survived with cystic fibrosis for 40 years and 11 years, 10 plus years with transplanted lungs to sit at home in my house alone eating a baked potato for dinner, which is pretty much what I did for a year. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. In 2019, there were just over 2,700 lung transplants performed in the U.S. For a person with cystic fibrosis, a genetic disease that causes persistent lung infections and impacts the ability to breathe over time, the transplant may extend life by years. Or it could lead to continued suffering and rejection of the new organ. Later, we'll find out what it's like to live a decade with transplanted lungs. But first, I want you to meet Mary Elizabeth Peters and Brian Serkis. While most of us are just hitting our stride in our late 20s, Beth and Brian were medicating, massaging, and coaxing their lungs into lasting as long as possible. Both had end-stage cystic fibrosis and were struggling to make the decision to get a lung transplant. Back in 2009 and 2010, Connecticut Public's Katie Talarski spent some time interviewing Beth and Brian to understand what it was like to live with this chronic disease. Here's a segment of that documentary. Hey, it's me. Um, it's Tuesday, I think the 22nd of June. I had my second call for transplant that didn't go through. Um, another donor was meant to get the lungs. I found out today that actually he didn't because the lungs threw a clot, a blood clot, and they couldn't be used at all. I just tried to recover from the journey last night of thinking maybe I was get my, be getting my lungs, and then I didn't. I'm starting to crack under the pressure, but um, I'm tired. Tired of waiting and tired physically. <clears throat> um, I was talking to my friend with CF who has decided to get a transplant. She's on the list and she's waiting. Um, it could be any day now. I was talking to her and telling her how excited I am for her and how great it's going to be for her. <clears throat> she started expressing how she felt bad for me because I wasn't getting a transplant. Just kind of made me think like a lot of people think that if you don't get a transplant, you're just kind of resigning to die. And that's it's not the case 
I, it's the opposite. I, I want to live. I want to like, I want to do everything I can with the time that I have, however much time that may be. I'm Brian Circus. 28 years old. Nope. 29. With CF. Cystic fibrosis. I'm Mary Elizabeth Peters. I'm 29 years old. I'm a drama teacher and a poet. When I was born uh, with cystic fibrosis, kids lived till about 8 or 10 years old. So being my age and the other CF patients that are my age have had this kind of unique experience of kind of chasing the demographic. You know, now that I'm 29, the average mortality is around 37. I grew up always thinking, oh, I'm only going to live to be 10. Oh, I'm only going to live to be 15. I was diagnosed when I was three. And I was really healthy up until about 22. And since then, there's a pretty sharp decline over the next like five years or so. My lung capacity kind of was falling away for me in a very slow way as I was growing up and through college. I was having, you know, a little bit of sickness here, a little bit of sickness there. So then by the time I was in my early 20s, I was down to about 40% lung capacity. The lung function that I'm at right now is about 19%. Last year, I got really sick. You know, they were they were surprised that I recovered, and it was just, it's been a slow recovery. I had to move back home from Boston. You know, in many ways, college is, you know, you have all this free time, and then you move into the work world, and you have to be somewhere every day at a certain time, and be there for eight, nine, ten hours. And it gets more difficult to figure out, well, how am I going to do three treatments a day? How am I going to get enough sleep? Well, what do I miss about Boston? I mean, all my friends. I really miss them. I miss the independence. I miss Fenway. <laughs> I miss going to the park. I miss driving. When I was in the ICU and my lungs were failing, the doctors were talking to me and my family about me dying and all the things we needed to do for, to prepare for that. And then just, I don't know, just kind of out of the blue, I started getting better. Still don't really understand why. Presumably all of the drugs they were pumping into me. <clears throat> so anything would have been better than you know, dying, <laughs> but no, I, you know, went through rehab, it was crazy, I was, I was, I know, right, Lily, yeah. My name is Ahmed Euler, director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Combined Children's Hospital Boston and Brigham and Women's CF Center. Beth and Brian were part of our CF Center. Cystic fibrosis is a genetically transmitted disease and uh, it impacts about 30,000 uh, people in the U.S. There's a deficiency in the, it's called the CFTR, CFTR gene, gene or the cystic fibrosis transmembrane 
regulator gene, which leads to dysfunction in multiple organs. It predominantly affects the lung. And in the lungs, when you have a dysfunctioning protein, you end up having a dehydrated airway surface liquid layer. This simple abnormality where chloride is not being regulated properly at the cell surface essentially doesn't allow for bacteria and other debris to be cleared. It also is very hospitable to bacteria. Bacteria can thrive. So bacteria that are normally pretty harmless to regular people will become very dangerous. Um, Chronic infection and inflammation that slowly uh, destroys the lung. It is a disease affecting the endocrine system. So most people produce wet, slippery mucus. mucus. Which is gross, right? I, I always say CF is the grossest disease anybody could have. Thicker and like sticky mucus. The mucus that's in your lungs, that's in your digestive system, in your gynecological system. Um, instead of being thin and being used for its proper functions in different areas of the body, it is too thick. It kind of grabs germs and grabs diseases. Very friendly to bacteria. And keeps them and lets them grow. And uh, in the lungs, it just clogs up the airways. So eventually... What we call an obstructive ventilatory defect. You, you know, you just have a lot of trouble breathing. You feel kind of like you're drowning all day. So what's happening is that the whole theory behind it is I'm pounding on his chest so that I can loosen all the thick mucus that he has more than you and I and because he needs to cough it up because if he doesn't, that's when he gets the bad infection. The light beating of your chest in different positions to drain the mucus and to open up the airways literally beating yourself, like beating mucus out of yourself. This is something that he has to have every single day. Coughing helps. Not everybody loves to cough because for them, when they start coughing, sometimes they can't stop coughing or sometimes they cough so hard it makes them want to throw up. When you cough up that big plug that you just like feel has been causing you trouble and now it's gone, it's, it's relieving. It's and I was really healthy up until when I first started growing uh, cepacia. We usually say that there's no emergencies in CF, um, but this bacteria presents an emergency. A group of organisms that we know that cause a worsening uh, disease in CF patients. In fact, when we use the word cepatia, it is, uh, patients feel this is a, a death sentence. They feel like this is the bacteria you need to avoid. There was a time when it seemed like a lot of patients were contracting cepatia and ad- adult patients who were doing relatively well and then, and then getting cepatia and then immediately having a ve- you know, very, getting very sick very quickly from it. These bacteria um, also impact the way you survive um, a post-lung transplant. Because the cepatia can come back, even after the lungs were taken out and replaced with new ones. And they think it's because the cepatia doesn't just get into the lungs, it gets into the blood, it gets 
gets into the whole body. Considering the the life I'd have to live just to go through this, to have, you know, just a 50% chance of surviving, just didn't sound like a good decision for me. In the way I've lived my life. You know, I'd rather... I'd rather fizzle out, you know, than fade. You know, many years ago, uh, we used to have CF patients play together, go to camps together, and hang out together until we noticed that these bacteria were spreading more rampantly. In the hospital, we had our own little CF crew because it was just like kind of a steady rotation of us throughout the year. The nursing staff all knew us and loved us. Well, you know, knew us anyway. <laughs> and we were just kids and it was kind of like a, a second family. And then now in adulthood, they don't want us to have any contact at all. You know, as we got older, Got sicker. My first friend died when I was, I think, 11 or 12. I had a very close family friend um, who actually passed away when I was like 13 or 14. You know, that's when you start. That's when I started like considering my own mortality. What is my relationship with my lungs? I I don't hate them. Um, I feel like my lungs are like a really poorly behaved child, you know, that it's like my job to coax them and take care of them and rub them and hold them. Um, but then sometimes they're really, really bad and I, and I get really angry at them and want to give them a time out. I don't want them anymore. <laughs> I'm done with them. I want to, I wish I could break up with them. Yeah, it's not my lungs. It's the stuff in my lungs. I hate that stuff. My biggest difficulties getting on the transplant list was facing the reality um, that part of my body would literally be removed. Thinking of all of those cells and parts of my body and my life's memory and journey taken out of me and then somebody else is put in, it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. I mean, I would have no problem cutting them out of me. <laughs> like, I'm not attached to these other than them being attached to me. It's been just a really difficult couple days. And, um, and people say that I have all this energy. And the truth is that I do have that energy. And then like one day a month, I lose my and cry all day. So I'm trying to like get out of that mindset. But I think it's actually good to just have a day where I just am like, this sucks and I'm going to spend my whole year like this and then I might not even make it. Which is kind of why I never really wanted a transplant because I didn't want to spend the last year of my life like this alone in my house not accomplishing anything or feeling that way and then I might not make it anyway. You know. So it's kind of where I'm at right now. Well, it was really difficult. I mean, I, I would say a year and a half ago, I, I wasn't even considering lung transplant. Um, because
because I've watched a lot of friends or family members go through it and have great difficulty or pass away rather quickly after their transplant. My thought was I wouldn't want to die twice. You know, I wouldn't want to go through the whole process of preparing for death and then get a transplant and then a year later be dying again. At, at, at that point when you're so sick that you're needing a transplant, I should say at this point, um, a lot of times it's easy to feel like you don't have any control. And uh, that, that's something I, I have control over is, you know, it's a decision I can make. It's firm. And also, you know, I kind of know how it's going to be at this point. I get it that, you know, other people would say, if this is it, if this is how my life is ending, I don't want to spend that time being a lab rat. You know, it's just a lot of soul searching, I guess you'd say. You know, a lot of questioning the ideas that are presented to me and just, I think asking the questions that everyone asks themselves, maybe just a decade earlier. <laughs> Have we had so many false alarms that nobody's answering? Hello, it's Beth. It's Beth. Call me back. Wait, I'm gonna try one more time and then I gotta get on the road. Hello. Hi mom, I got a call. I knew it. Um, as the primary recipient. But I gotta get everything ready. I gotta, Carl's um, here in my driveway, so I'm gonna um, go, and then I'll call you at the hospital to give you more details. Okay, you're at Boston? Yeah, at Boston. Okay, so, all right. And it's a young, it. it's a young donor. I knew it. Okay. Yes, I knew it. All right. Okay. Bye. I know you're busy, call me back. Okay, I love you, bye-bye. Bye. Hi, this is Beth Peters. I um, am a lung transplant recipient from July 27th, 2010. The third time I was called in was the time that I got my transplant. I was feeling really excited and I was feeling really like I just wanted to get it over with because the more time that went by, the more I, I started to think about the actual process of it. Um, and that was making me very emotional. I call them boyfriend <laughs> because I'm convinced that they're male. I don't know if the donor was male or not, but the things that they do are very masculine. Like they burp all the time. They make me burp. I never burped before. I'm quite a lady. And now all of a sudden I'll burp all the time like a man. The weirdest sensation is that more than half the time when I cough, there's nothing, there's no, it's just like, <coughs> that's it. 
you know? And I never had that experience before. To know that like normal people cough and clear their throat and they don't cough something up. Who knew? Well, I remember right after I got my transplant, I told my sister that my lungs felt like a big empty cave. Um, and they still kind of feel that way because I, I can't feel everything. And before I could feel every single thing that happened in my lungs. Like if I had fluid here or bleeding there or whatever, I could feel everything. And now I can't really feel anything. So when I inhale, I can just keep inhaling and it seems like I don't really know when it ends. So I kind of still think of them that way as like a big empty cave. A few months ago, I, uh, I had an episode of hemoptysis, which is coughing up blood. And um, I woke up in the middle of the night. I was like gargling and I knew what it was. So I got up because this has happened to me before. You know, it was just kind of spitting it out as it came up. But it kept coming up. And it kept coming. And I, like, couldn't breathe. And it suddenly occurred to me that this is probably how it's going to happen. This is what dying is going to feel like. Turning 30 for me was more of an accomplishment. My mom, being the wonderful person she is, threw me a huge, amazing birthday party and invited all of my friends from all over and family. Uh, so it, a, lot, a lot's happened in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, my life has changed a lot. And... My opinions on certain things have changed, and I guess what I've come to the conclusion is that I'm going to pursue a lung transplant. I want to say my gut told me that, you know, but it's more than that. It just, it just feels like it's right. Because I analyzed it a lot. My gut told me that it would be best for me to just take the time I had and rather than, you know, chase some sort of pipe dream with the, this lung transplant, um, make the most of the time I had. Time with my friends, time with my family. Just kind of be happy for every day. You know? And I did that. I did that for two years. I did what I wanted to do. I... I... did it. Then we go back to that day of me coughing blood. That was a turning point for me. That was when I started thinking you know what, maybe I do want to try for a transplant. Like, whatever happens, happens. I'm not nervous about it failing. I actually, I actually get nervous thinking about what I'm going to do with myself after transplant. Like, am I going to have to go back to work? Really? Ugh. <laughs> 
That was Brian Circus and Mary Elizabeth Peters from a 2010 documentary produced by Katie Talarski. She's the Senior Director of Storytelling at Connecticut Public and the executive producer of this show. Ten years ago, she spent more than a year interviewing Beth and Brian about living with end-stage cystic fibrosis and the decision to get a transplant. Katie is here with me now. Katie, we heard that Beth got her transplant and that after some hesitancy, Brian had also decided to pursue getting a transplant. What happened with Brian? So unfortunately, Brian died in August of 2011, which was not long after the documentary came out. um, And he was in the hospital waiting for his transplant when he died. And that was so hard, especially because it felt like he just he was so close to getting his lungs. Um, And from my conversations with him, I know that he had made a peace with death and with his own mortality, but it was just so close. Um, And, you know, I am so grateful that Brian was willing to share his story with me and that we have these recordings because he's just such an incredible person. And I feel the same with Beth. You know, they both have been through so much. And the fact that they are so, you know, Brian was so open about it and Beth continues to be, um, is just incredible. After all this time, you know, we're we're putting this show together and taking this big, long look and following Beth and what's happened with her. And we'll hear more about that in the rest of the show. But I wonder what it was like for you as you reviewed this audio to hear Brian's voice. Yeah, it always makes me really sad, but it also makes me happy because he just was this force of life and light. And I actually just sent his mom a note today on Facebook and told her that we're airing this again and, you know, Brian's voice will be out there. And she said, you know, she loves listening back because she can hear his laugh. And um, it was, you know, we were all the same age back then. We were all about 29 years old. And so this was made me take a strong look at my own life and mortality as well uh, by talking to Beth and Brian. So just hearing Brian again, I'm grateful that he shared his story and that we can continue to share his voice and his story with our listeners. Well, his story is beautifully told. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you, Kion. If you want to make sure you're an organ donor, visit organdonor.gov. When we get back, Katie checks in with Mary Elizabeth Peters a decade after her double lung transplant. I picture that his soul is passed on to heaven, but his lungs are stuck here in earth, so I have to do well by them, you know? I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about chronic illness and life before and after a lung transplant. Earlier, we heard a documentary from 2010 produced by Connecticut Public's Katie Talarski that featured our next guest, Mary Elizabeth Peters. She's an author, a patient advocate, and a theater arts educator. She has cystic fibrosis and received a double lung transplant in July of 2010. Last week, Katie had a chance to sit back down with Beth a decade after the documentary and the transplant. So I follow you on social media, all your different accounts, but we haven't really had a conversation in probably longer than a decade. 
because that was when the the documentary came out and I had interviewed you for months leading up to your double lung transplant. And then after your transplant in that documentary, I asked you what your relationship was to your old lungs. So I want to ask you again now, what is your relationship to your new lungs now that they're, you know, you've had them for 10 years? I do still personify them as being male. Um, (laughs) I mean, honestly, like I have definitely had medical challenges in the last 10 years, but only one of them was significantly related to my lungs. And the most of my lung functioning is pretty normal. So I, I guess I don't have like a strong personification of them right now or like relationship to them because most of the time they act pretty normal, which is crazy. One other thing that you had said when you were in that conversation with your mom before you, when you found out you were going to get your lungs, mm-hmm. was that all you knew that it was that it was from a young donor. Do you have any other knowledge of like who that person was? Well, I do now know that the person was male. They were an adult, like illegally an adult. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I know about it, is that it was a younger man. And And what do you think about or how do you think about um, that person, that young man who is no longer here, but has, you know, has donated his organs to you, you know, how, what's your relationship with, with him as you carry on with his lungs? Well, truthfully, I think about him a lot when I see young men out in the world doing dangerous things, like whether riding motorbikes or like, right you know, riding motorcycles or like anytime I come across a person in my life who's like about that age, like 18, 19, 20, who's doing dangerous things with their body, I think about him. And I think, I wonder, he probably didn't leave the house that day thinking that he was going to pass away and donate his organs to myself and whoever else got his organs. And it's crazy to think that they're still alive. I mean, almost 11 years later, not quite, but, but you know, and sometimes I, you know, darkly joke that my lungs like are mad at me because they would like to be in heaven already. Because <laughs> the rest of the rest of his body is in, you know, I, I picture that as being that his soul is passed on to heaven, but his lungs are stuck here in earth. So I have to do well by them, you know, because they could be in heaven and they're not there yet. Yeah, Even though that's a weird way to think about it. No, I think that's, that is interesting. Does it, do you feel like there's pressure? I do. I think there's a little bit of, I'm not not sure if it's pressure, but Mm -hmm. like, I I know that in the last 11 years, anytime that I've been in a, you know, whether in a bad employment situation or a bad relationship, you know, romantically, or like if, if I was ever in a situation where my, like my life was really, you know, which in a decade, you're going to have some times where like things are not going well. (laughs) I would think like the, you know, uh, these lungs, I'm not alive right now to put up with this, or I, you know, or I'm not. These lungs are not in my body to keep me alive, so I can cry on the way to, to this crappy job every day. Like I need to get a new job, or whatever it is. And it's, I'm making like a kind of silly comparison, but but so I think that is part of my narrative. Like I'm still alive. I should really be only doing things that serve myself, serve the community, serve the world. Like I shouldn't really be, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a, it's like perspective. Right. A little bit of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about this past year. For everyone, this has been a really 
challenging year. Um, but I wonder about what was it like to live through this pandemic and maybe have to be extra, extra cautious? And, you know, how comfortable will you feel going back to normal if that's even a thing that you feel like will happen? So I think at the beginning of the pandemic, because it was so shocking the way it, the whole thing came down. So it seemed so fast. You know, um, my day job right now is that I am an elementary school drama teacher, Boston public school teacher um, with little kids that on a good day with no pandemic are little germ factories, you know? So I think, you know, having the lead in of, a, oh, this is becoming a serious thing in our world. Oh, it's, this is, um, COVID is in America now. Oh, there was the biogen. Okay. The shocking way that it came down, I reacted to it the same way as everybody else did. Like, what is going on? Um, and then as it went on for so long, I feel like I wanted to be as cautious as everyone told me to be. But I also, there was this kind of irony about it because I've always lived with a fear of respiratory diseases that would, I would catch that would kill me. So it felt very familiar, like, well, I can do what I can do so that I don't catch this really bad thing that it would take me down in a heartbeat. But I also want to live my life, you know, and what you were asking about earlier, what we were talking about earlier, I did have a lot of moments where I was like, I even survived with cystic fibrosis for 40 years and 11 years, 10, you know, 10 plus years with transplanted lungs to sit at home in my house alone, eating a baked potato for dinner, <laughs> which is pretty much what I did for a year, a year. So I think I was, you know, I had a r ironic feelings about it or maybe angry feelings about the, the yeah. whole pandemic. Yeah. In some ways, this, the perspective that a lot of us have gained over the past year because of the pandemic, which is like, someone I love might die. Right. I might die. Um, oh, my God. Germs everywhere. Like, that's something that you've had your whole life. And so we're all sort of like joining you in this, you know, in the reality that you've been living. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, early in the pandemic, but then, then it's become an even more divisive issue is this idea of wearing masks and other kinds of PPE and people having such a problem with it. And then also people acting like masks and PPE don't really protect you or protect you anyone else. I mean, I, you know, I remember early on being in a, a conversation with somebody who was like, I just think it's ridiculous to wear a mask in the grocery store. I mean, what's going to happen in the grocery store? And I've been wearing a mask in the grocery store in the wintertime since I got my trans since a year before my transplant, because immunologists have known for a long time that grocery stores are incredibly germy places because everyone is touching the food and you end up standing next to people for long periods of time. And just the, the nature of so many different things about a grocery store make it a Petri dish. Um, and people re overreacting to that idea that you would wear a mask in the grocery store. And, and then also this fallacy that it wouldn't help anyway. And it's like, well, all of the science has been there forever before COVID that wearing a mask protects yourself and protects other people. So stuff like that really made me mad that that 
that simple things that people with CF or people post-transplant or people with cancer or, you know, all this list of things that now everyone in society seems to be more aware of that people have been doing for years. I mean, I know people who for years have been coming home and immediately taking off their clothes and putting in the laundry and putting on fresh clothes to do all of these practices that people really discovered during COVID and also acted like were, were horrible things that were ruining their lives. I know people who have been doing that for 20 years to protect themselves from getting the flu or RSV. So it was just kind of funny to see how lazy and selfish a lot of people are and that they had such a small perspective on like, if that's the worst thing that you need to do is change your clothes when you come home and wear a mask when you go to the grocery store and that's all you need to do to protect yourself from a respiratory illness, well, like, you should talk to some of my friends because they do hours and hours and hours of work every day to make sure they don't die from a respiratory illness. That's Mary Elizabeth Peters. She's an author, a patient advocate, and a theater arts educator. She has cystic fibrosis and received a double lung transplant in July of 2010. She's speaking with Katie Tolarski, Senior Director of Storytelling and Radio Programming here at Connecticut Public, who last interviewed her a decade ago for a documentary about chronic illness and lung transplant. After the break. This could be the year that I have a big rejection incident or not. I could get through this and there we could be sitting here doing another interview 10 years from now and I could have the same lungs in my body. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, I'm handing over the interview mic to my colleague Katie Talarski. A decade ago, she interviewed Mary Elizabeth Peters. She was a 29-year-old with end-stage cystic fibrosis. In July of 2010, Beth got her double lung transplant. Today, she's an author, a patient advocate, and a theater arts educator. In the past decade, Beth lost her sister, Teresa who also had cystic fibrosis and had gotten her double lung transplant in 2003. Teresa died in 2013 because of an infection and rejection in her new lungs. She was 36 years old. Beth told us, It's been strange to outlive her in years, but also in time post-transplant. It makes me wonder how long my transplanted lungs will last before I run into a lot of trouble. And if I would need a second transplant, would I want to get it? I'm not sure. Katie asked Beth about the outlook for her own lungs. As I understand from my research, the year after the lung transplant is sort of the most tenuous time where things can go wrong or your body can reject the organ. Um, And some lungs can last five years, 10 years. Some people have had their lungs for decades. So how are your lungs doing? And in what circumstances would you need to start planning for a second transplant? Well, I have only had one episode that they are considering me at the time. They called it an acute rejection episode, which was about five years in and was totally random. Like I did my, I go for blood work every couple of weeks to check on different things. And my blood work came back kind of crazy. And then we did a bronchoscopy and that also came back showing that I was in acute rejection and I had no 
symptoms. I wasn't short of breath. I had no fevers. The only thing that showed it was that my blood work, my white count was out of control. And then when they did a bronchoscopy, which is when they actually go down your throat into your lungs and take samples, those also showed that my immune system was sort of attacking the lungs on a you know pretty big, that's a basic way to explain it. But that was about five years in. So now that's about five and a half years ago. And then since then, sometimes my numbers have gone up and down that I may be in chronic rejection. And um, chronic rejection is when slowly over time, your body rejects the organ over a course of, some, for some people months, but most people years and years. Um, but then sometimes we think I'm not in any sort of a chronic rejection phase. So if I am in chronic rejection, it's very mild. So for me, 11 years out to have only have had one acute rejection episode and it was solved pretty easily. And to not even know if my body is in chronic rejection is pretty good. That's pretty good in terms of statistics. It's very good. It's super good. <laughs> so one thing that you had talked about back when I interviewed you was this idea of chasing the demographic. Um, hmm. So the, about your life expectancy. So when you were little, you know, it was like 10 or 11, um, 10 years ago, you said that the life expectancy for cystic fibrosis was 37. Now yeah. you're 40. We, we talked about this a decade ago, but I'm wondering how you're still thinking about that idea now of like, you've always beaten that the odds for this disease. Yeah, the life expectancy for somebody with CF is finally over the age of 40. So once again, I'm like just younger than it. And transplant, you know, in the late 90s, when they started, not late, the mid 90s, when they started really doing lung transplants in America, and as they've increased over the years, they used to give you that kind of timeline and say like, you know, lung transplants only last this many years, and then you'll be looking at a second transplant. And now, there have been so many transplants and there are so many people that are living beyond 10 years, beyond 15, even into 20 years post and all of that, that they don't really play that game anymore. Um, at least not, at least my, my team hasn't. And the other team that I've seen haven't um, in terms of giving me an expectancy, but then you still kind of, you know, dig around on, on the NIH website and the UNOS website and all these places and find out, well, there are, there are still hard stats about how long the transplants last and what, who gets retransplanted and what the mortality is. So I, I do still feel that feeling, especially now that I'm t more than 10 years out, that it's like, well, this is another pivotal time, you know, where there, this could be the year that I have a big rejection incident or, or not. I could get through this and there, we could be sitting here doing another interview 10 years from now and I could have the same lungs in my body. So you are working on a book right now yes. called Don't Let Them Kill You, 10 Rules for Navigating Chronic Illness. And you're yes. also a chronic illness patient advocacy coach. Can you talk about some of the rules in your book? Well, the book I want to be really practical. You know, I want it to be the book that I needed, say, 15 years ago when I was 25 years old and my health was going downhill and I was single and had a job and had some crappy health insurance. I actually had a crappy job, I had crappy health insurance. I lived by myself and my health was headed south. And I 
I mean, I knew some things from growing up with CF, but there were a lot of things that I didn't know that if I had known, I would have prepared for a little bit better. And, and I, I think I was able to prepare for those things by the time I was 30 and needed a transplant. So I want the book to be kind of darkly humorous, um, like myself, <laughs> but I also want it to be kind of a how-to guide for a person who finds themselves with failing health, who lives and works independently and maybe doesn't have a huge family structure or I don't know, isn't a millionaire <laughs> and needs to figure out how is this all going to work? How am I going to piece together all of these parts of American life that are demanded of people while I am dying from something? And that's pretty complicated, you know? So some of the chapters are more darkly comedic, like chapter four is called Don't Keep a Doctor Who Won't Learn Your name <laughs> and during that yes. chapter i talk about you know finding doctors that are compatible with you but also not doctor shopping you know not finding you know not going from doctor to doctor to doctor until you find someone who, who will just be a yes man or woman and then there's other chapters about um that are more serious that are about remembering the things that you've been through and sort of harnessing your your inner strength to move forward, knowing that, you know, by the time your health is really failing you, you've already lived through a lot of things. And you already know a lot of things about what you need and what you want out of life. And to really give yourself power in that and move forward with some of those things more concretely decided in your mind. Tell me about the work that you're doing now in education and theater and how everything that you've been through affects your you know, your teaching and your storytelling? Oh, that's a great question. So I've been with the Boston Public Schools for seven years, and I teach K-0, kindergarten zero, which is three and four-year-olds through sixth grade. Um, in my past, I have taught high school theater too, and I do love that, but I also really love teaching the little kids. I also work with children with autism and children with multiple disabilities at my school. I focus on developing their self-esteem, developing their voice, and developing their sense of expression. And I think that the, the way that my life has unfolded, you know, my belief is that people's voices matter and their stories matter. And I've done a lot of work this year because I'm in this program kind of exploring my own childhood and my own relationship with elementary school and and the kind of experiences I had in elementary school as a, a child with special needs. And working with children with special needs now, it's really important to me that those kids know that their stories matter and that they are full and complicated humans who happen to be very young. So I take my job kind of seriously. I take it actually really seriously because I, I think it's, the time that they get to spend in drama class, I think for some of them is, for some of them, it's the only time where somebody is telling them to tell their story. Is there anything else that you feel like would be important to mention or talk about? Anything that I didn't ask? Well, the only one thing I want to say about this past year is that, you know, I've been kind of sailing along pretty well. And then this year I had a couple of health problems and none of them were COVID related. 
but I had a couple of health problems that really brought me back or even one health problem that was so different than anything that I experienced before. It sort of reminded me that, you know, we should all be humble and we should all like, I don't know, I need to, I shouldn't say we all, I, I need to be humble and I need to realize that my body I am strong and I am healthy, but my body has limitations. And if I don't serve my body well, my body will remind me that it has limitations. And I have to remember all those skills of how to take care of myself and how to get the care I need and who to get it from and how to protect my brain when my body's going through something awful. Mary Elizabeth Peters, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thanks for having me. It was good to talk to you again. Mary Elizabeth Peters is an author, a patient advocate, and a theater arts educator. If you want to make sure you're an organ donor, visit organdonor.gov. Even if you're pretty sure you're already registered, at that website you can edit your preferences. Like, when I went there, I saw that I was able to confirm that it's cool with me if my organs, eyes, and tissue are used in research and education. Check your status at organdonor.gov. To hear the full documentary that Katie made back in 2010 with Brian and Beth, visit ctpublic.org audacious and click through to today's show. If, when you heard Katie's original documentary, you wondered how did she get all that tape? How did she figure out how to weave those voices in and out like that? Then, first of all, you're an audio production nerd like me, and you should also make sure you're subscribed to the Audacious podcast feed. It's there that you'll hear me interview the interviewer. Katie and I talk about the hours of tape that she went through and how she used color-coded post-it notes to arrange all the audio she got to make the documentary you heard so dynamic and powerful. Plus, when you subscribe, you always get to hear the show a day early. Look us up wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks to Katie Talarski and to producer Jessica Severin Martinez. Audacious is produced at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.